This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. So the only thing left to say is, you in? Order now on the McDonald's app, and you can also get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants, 18 plus. Rewards registration required, points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Well, hello and welcome to Albion Analysis. And I'm delighted to say we're joined by a very special guest here, um, a former West Bromwich Albion manager. And I'm not going to call him caretaker manager. I'm going to make that very, very clear throughout. The, uh, Jimmy Shan, former West Bromwich Albion manager. And Jimmy, before we get started on anything else, I'm going to throw a, the stat at you because this is always a statistic-based um, podcast. And I don't know whether you're aware of this. 58.3% is your win percentage as West Bromwich Albion manager. Are you aware that that is the best of any West Bromwich Albion manager in history who has managed 10 games or more? I have been told, to be fair, Chris, by a, by a few fans who have contacted me on, on social media platforms. And um, it's obviously a fantastic set and one that I'm very, very proud of. And, you know, that, that process obviously was, wasn't just a process of, of my 12 games in charge. It was a process that, that Darren had started in, you know, as, as a manager as well. So, I don't look at it in isolation that it was just my 12 games and I went there with a, with a magic wand. You know, it was a process of, and a scheme of work over, over probably a little more than 12 months with, with Darren going in and doing those, those six games as, as caretaker in the Premier League. We'll, come, we'll circle back round to your time as, uh, as West Brom manager, but kind of, I almost want to start chronologically. And you were at the club for a, for a very, very long time. I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but 2006 through to 2019. So it, 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 yeah. was, it was 13 years. What kind of an evolution did you see in the football club over that period of time? Because it must have been massive. Yeah, um, I mean, I was I was at Birmingham City before I went across to West Brom, and it was kind of I met Terry Westley, who just went into into Birmingham as academy manager. I met Dan Ashworth, who, as we all know, Dan Dan played a, a massive part in, in in the in the club's growth. And it was really Dan's vision as an academy manager back then that that sold me that West Brom was the right place for my development. Um, and I, I think he was a you know along with a few others and. Obviously, Mark Harrison taking the reins after him as academy manager. I think the club are very, very fortunate to have some very, very good people in the place, in the building at one time. That all had a vision of 
of personal development and personal growth. But more importantly, wanted to, wanted to help improve the, the football club. So, um, yeah, I've, I've seen lots of change in, in my 13 years at the football club. And, you know, fortunately for myself and, you know, for the, for the staff that worked there in that time, it was, it was all successful. And, you know, it was year on year, it, it, it seemed to grow and get better and better. Well, to be fair, let's not dance around. Let's get straight to some of the, the meat of it. How disappointed were you to, to see so many of those wonderful people leave in such a short period of time? Yeah, I think it's always inevitable. And I think I think one of the big strengths as a, as a football club has been is, is the growth and development of players. So players that maybe have, have been at more perceived bigger clubs than West Bromwich Albion come and they find, their, they find their route and their way back into it. As an academy, you accept that you're going to lose you know, some of your starlets to, to bigger and better things, which can be profitable for, for, for the football club. So it's inevitable that people are going to move on. I think the big shock, the big shock for myself and, and maybe the football club was so many people departed at the same time. And um, for whatever their individual circumstance were at that, at that moment in time, you know, it was, a, it was quite, a, quite, a, quite a shock. And, you know, if you have four or five real key players, and we're, we're talking more in particular about the academy, four or five key players go at one time it's uh it's a big loss and it and it's almost you know unrepairable really to, to get to get people in with the level of expertise the level level of knowledge but also the level of understanding of the football club and I think that's been a been a big big loss and a, and a big miss to West Brom and you see the direction those staff have gone it's obviously going to be a big game for Aston Villa Football Club. Yeah absolutely and I mean we, that that's kind of coincided with a lot of the players leaving, and uh, do you do you feel that you, you know your Mark Harrison's, your Mike Scotts, your Steve Hopcroft's walk uh, go, uh, leaving and going out the door? If they hadn't gone, do you feel there would have been such an exodus of the players, or it, it does you know is it very much two plus two equals four here? Well, I think over the, over the my time at the football club, you know, we had lots and lots of players that Jonathan Leeko, for for example, or Rikim Harper, that had lots of interest and some serious interest by by clubs offering them personal, you know, very, very good deals. But also clubs contacting the football club and, you know, it would have been good business by the, by the football club. So I think at a time with Jonathan Leeko, I think Tottenham Hotspur reportedly five or six million pound. Now within that process, Jonathan was not quite a first team player, but was a little bit more than an academy player. And I know Mark and, and, and the staff would have played, you know, a key role in, in ensuring Jonathan stayed at the football club. First and foremost, because of having that trust in, in his development, uh, you know, and, and, and people that have been in around, you know, Jonathan, Mark had a really good relationship with him, Mark Harrison. Jo- Jonathan would have seen Mark as a mentor and would have trusted his word. So, yeah, 100%. I think, I think when you have those, when you form those bonds and relationships with people, you form a trust. And most definitely, you know, those, those key players in key roles, key positions leaving, um, I think if they would have remained at the football club, I, th- I think maybe one or two would have, would have certainly, you know, penned, longer deals at West Bromwich Albion Football Club and we're still been in the building, yeah. What made that group of youth team staff that you were a part of for such a long time so special? What what makes, what effectively what I'm asking is what makes a good youth team, what makes a good academy and not in terms of the players, in terms of the people running it? I've reflected on this quite a lot, Chris, because obviously I've, I've since gone into two different football clubs, three if you include my time at, at Kidderminster. Um, I think the big one is ego. There was no ego, you know, and everybody had the same work ethic. And I think that was a big thing. So you rewind the clock. I, I was in the building as a 27-year-old, you know, and, and Mark's a couple of years older than me. Danks is a few years younger than me. Mark Naylor's a couple of, we, we were all, you know, in and around 
an age where we'd be perceived as young coaches, you know, young young people working in a, in a, in a full-time professional environment in an academy. And we all had this, this desire to, for self-improvement. And that self-improvement was, you know, as individuals going the extra mile and, you know, and, and studying and being students of the game, et cetera. But we brought it together. So it wasn't a case of I'd go and see something and, you know, I'd go and watch a Roy Hodgson work before he comes to the football club, you know, off, off, at my own time. I want to go and see what Roy's all about. He's very, very good things about him. But I'd bring that back to the football club and, and educate the other staff. Um, you know, Danksy's always been very, very intrigued by different industries and different sports. He'd bring that back into the mix as well. Mark would go to Croatia. Dan Ashworth went to Inter Milan on a study visit. And everything came back into the same pot. So we had all these these shared experiences that, you know, not, not necessarily that individual in my eyes would have seen, but I would have been educated back from the staff. So I think it's togetherness. I think a lack of an ego. Everybody having that that real blend of personal and you know personal growth and and want for self improvement, which you know if everybody's on that on that page, the academy is going to go from strength to strength because the focus is the academy and and improving the academy and improving the players as, as, as well as yourself. So I think I also think it's a unique set of circumstances. As well, you know, I, I don't. I, I think West Brom were just fortunate at a particular moment in time that that blend and that group of staff were together. Um, and in that time, I'd, I'd like to say that that time was successful. And in having that togetherness, how important do you think it is to have like the first team and the academy all in one building or training together, um, making those, building those relationships with the first team players and, and staff? I, th- I think it, I think it's invaluable. I think it makes it an easier transition for the player as well. So if, if I'm an under-18 coach and I've got a relationship with the first team manager and the first team staff, that makes it a little bit easier when an, an under-18 perhaps goes across to that first team environment for the first time because I'd go along with him, you know, and introduce him to the, to the, to the, to the players and the staff. And, um, you know, even just sat in the canteen for, for first team players to, to know who the young players are and the players who are, who are doing the chores and doing the jobs and cleaning the boots and, you know, in those informal relationships, I just think it makes that transition a lot easier. Um, and obviously from a coaching perspective, if I'm in and around that first team environment and the first team office, I get to know firsthand what the first team want so I can prepare the players. Sometimes, obviously, different different managers will have different ideas and, and, and methods and, and playing styles, etc. And as an academy, we try and, as an academy member of staff, what you try and do is you try and imagine that every single player's got a toolbox and you need to fill that toolbox for whatever manager's in the door. But if I've got an idea that Rye's going to play, Rye Hodgson's going to play 4-4-2 and he's going to, his preferred method without the ball is going to be in a low block. I can start to educate the players that as on a, on a day-to-day basis within our in our training program as well. So when they do go across, they have some kind of understanding of it. So I think it's invaluable that your first team and and obviously you, you're under 18s and 23s are in the same building and you're forming relationships, coaching staff and players and, and coaching staff and coaching staff. Is that possibly where we've struggled in recent years? Because we've had so many different managers with so many different styles. You look at, you can't compare Pulis to Pardew. You can't really compare what, you know, what you tried to do, you and Darren tried to do that season was quite different to what uh, Slavin did the next season. And then Sam Allardyce is very, very different to that. And then Valerian Ishmael is so different to anything else we've had before. 
when you're looking at the youth team, does that make it really hard for you? Because you almost don't know what what types of players to, uh, to focus upon. You don't know whether you're going to want little quick strikers or whether you're going to want big target men because you don't know who the manager's going to be or what his style of play is going to be in the next season. It is difficult for sure. Um, I think the unique thing that West Bromwich Albion had, um, and, and it's seemingly that they're going away from that model, whether they return back to the model of a, of a technical director, I'm unsure. When you have that technical director, it is a it is a, a club philosophy and a club identity, and the only thing that will change really will will, will be that with your first team. So, the the ideology of of the playing style will be there, and then circumstance it will it will deviate. So, obviously, if you're going for promotion in the championship and you're not getting success in playing under the the the, the umbrella of your, of your playing style, then you need to deviate from that and you need to find ways to win games because. It's a winning industry. It's, it's a, it's a three-point mentality. And the same when we were a Premier League team, you know, it was about Premier League survival. It was about staying in that Premier League because of the financial reward that the football club received from that. Um, you know, and, and the football club wanted to compete at the highest level. So, as I said, I think, I think we had, when, certainly when Dan was in charge and Dan was technical director and, and the other one that I think was very good and I thought Nick Hammond was, was very, very good as well. You know, it was, it was a clear, this is how we're going to recruit. This is what we're going to be. And if we need to be adaptable with our teaching to the players, then that comes from the skill set of the coach. And like, like I just alluded to in the, in the, in the, in the previous question that, you know, I very, very quickly know what Roy wants. I very, very quickly know what Tony wants. And my job is to try and make sure that the player is able to play in a different brand of football to Tony Pulis. But fundamentally, while Tony's, Tony's the manager, Tony's going to be calling upon our young academy players to go into their first team. So, They've got to be equipped with the tools to go. Right, right. And Tony, Tony is so Tony would have a um, Tony would have a lot of shape work, a lot of 11, 11 by eleven stuff. And I actually think Tony's a very, very good coach. So the Tony Pulis brand of football, Tony Pulis is an is an outstanding, is an expert in delivering it. So Tony would have a phrase on a turnover of possession, leave the ball, i.e., fall back into shape behind behind the ball, get a nice solid structure. Sometimes utilize the halfway line as your pressing trigger to go to work. Whereas in the academy, on the turnover, it'd be very, very Barcelona, very Man City, yes, smother, get that immediate pressure on the ball. So we'd have to educate the players to understand that ability to have that instant pressure because the next manager might want that. So they need to understand that, but then also understand that within times, we're going to need to regroup and become a little bit deeper and resemble that structure that Tony Pulis would like. So I think it comes from the skill set of your technical director to be really strong on these are the type, this is the player profile we want in a number nine. And that number nine might look like a six foot five target man you're going to build and play off. Or that number nine might look like a, an Aguero who's, you know, five foot ten, five foot nine and quick and agile between the lines. So I think it's strong. It's a real strong um, message and job for that technical director to be really strong in what play you recruit. And then the skill set of your coach then to go, right, how are these players going to get in the first team? How are they, how are they going to progress into, into, that manager style of play and, and adapt your work on a on a day to day basis. What are you looking for at that point in time? I'm sure you get asked this all the time. I'm thinking, you know, are you are you more looking? Has this player got the ability, the the physical skill sets, or how much are you looking at? How much have they got it up here? How much how much they want it as well? How much does d- does desire almost override ability at times? Great question. I think. I think working at the older ages in the academy, you, you almost, it's not a guarantee, but you can almost guarantee that the players are going to come through with 
a decent technical level and ability and a decent tactical understanding because of the programme and the work you've put in. And of course, recruitment. I think over the last probably for the last five years in particular, more so top, you know, top end Premier League, the game is the game is always evolving and always becoming more physical and more athletic. And I think if you look at the physical stature now of a Premier League player, you know, they are they are a different beast to to to, to what it was when Tony was in charge at West Brom in the Premier League. You know, they're quicker, they're bigger, they're stronger. Um, so I think physicality is a, a big one. The last thing you said there, Chris, I, I, I'm big on it. Mentality, you know, having that, having a a mentality to have that self improvement, to um, succeed, to go the extra mile, to not get too highs with a high and too low with the lows. I think I think it's imperative, and um, I actually think academy as a as a broad spectrum now players will be physically very good, technically very good, tactically very good. And it's that mental, the, the mental side of it will, for me, make or break a, a player's career. I mean, the numbers are never in, never in a young player's favour. Percentage-wise, the chances of making it versus not making it, you're always in a higher percentage chance of not making it than making it. Yet, you go through the leagues, in from the Premier League straight the way down to League Two, and it is littered with West Bromwich Albion Academy graduates. You've just had Kane Wilson uh, make the PFA Team of the Year um, in, for League Two. You, Chrissy Wood has, has gone, to the, um, uh, gone to Newcastle for 25 million quid. And I, I could just r- run through the divisions and, and name players in different teams. Luke Daniels in the Championship. You've got Sido playing in, in League One as well. You know, you could go through all the leagues and name a load of players. It's like you. It's like you, as an academy, have defied the odds. How proud does that make you? Very proud, Jed. I think I spoke to a young coach today, and he asked me the difference between being an academy coach and a, and a, and a first team coach, a manager, or assistant manager. You, you wins in an academy is, is is getting people players careers. That's your win. That's your success. That's your three points. That's your promotion. It's you know it's it's enabling players to have a career in in the game. So. You're, you're right. You know, I've I've come across, I've been on some pitches this year and gone, blimey, I've, I've worked with him. You know, I, I, I hadn't looked at the team sheet in depth or the squads in depth. And for a period of time, this player was at West Brom. So, um, yeah, hugely, huge, hugely proud um, of the success the, the academy's had. And, you know, we've, I think we've probably, in my time at the academy, sent probably six or seven lads to the States. So, you know, not necessarily lads that have gone on, gone on in the game professionally within this country or within Europe they've gone to America on a scholarship and you know dual, dual education um the qualifications with football and have been very successful you know there's, there's there's probably four or five lads that have remained in in America and and have made their life and, and equally equally as proud of proud of that Chris you know that people have gone on and and football's gave them a platform for for a successful life so yeah it's uh it's huge hugely rewarding E Triple P when it when it came in, I mean, it, it was originally designed, and you know, having seen what it was originally designed to be, it looked like quite a good thing. Now there was some late addendums to what E Triple P said, largely that Category One clubs could poach cat- players off other Category One clubs. Has has that really hurt youth development in this country? Um, because to my eye, it seems like it's led to a lot of stockpiling of players by the really big clubs. What, what's your take on it? I think when it, when it first came out, 
I think as an, as an academy, we were quite fortunate because a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that was introduced, and again, you, you've got to, you've got to take your hat off to Dan Ashworth and, and Mark Harrison, who would have led the academy in the time that I was at the football club. You know, I thought we were innovators, and a lot of the, a lot of the structure and and the process was already in place at West Brom. So for us as an academy, it was quite an easy transition. For a lot of clubs, I think it helped upskill their process, their vision, their purpose of, of their work. So I think for the for the benefit of the game and the benefit of youth development, I actually, I actually think it's um, it has aided and helped because it gets you thinking about your work and it gets you structured and organised. And as I go back to that work process, you know, there's a process to getting a player from being an under six when they walk in the door now, and you know, up until age under 23, competing at 21, 22 years of age. There's a process, and I think it's been a real, real aid in terms of stockpiling. Yeah, I get it. Um, you know, and maybe. Maybe that changed slightly before EWP when we went from the old reserve league to under 21s. You know, there's a lot of stats, stats on, certainly at the time as a football club, we were in the Premier League. And I think the average age of a Premier League debutant was something like 22.8 years, years of age. So as a football club, then you look and you go, well, actually, are we doing the right thing in letting this lad go at 19? So then naturally, then you begin to retain people for an extra year, an extra 18 months, an extra two years. And you're quite right in what, what you say there. The danger is stockpiling, and the danger then is is blocking pathways for your elite under 16 or your elite 17 year old, and that becomes a danger. So, yeah, I, I, I do I do see that there's a, a big big benefit in in one sense, and then there's a danger of you know of, of probably selling a, a, a false vision to a 20 year old who maybe when he was 18 you knew he wasn't quite gonna cut it and, and get, in, get a career in the game or progress into your first team. So I think for me, there's a little bit of a balance, Chris. I think, I think it's done a, I think each of the as a, as a, as a process has, has, has benefited and aided youth development. I mean, people like to talk about the Brentford model, like it could be applied to everybody and because, because they've got, basically they've bounced through the divisions and, uh, and they've got into the Premier League and uh, that, you know, they are staying in the Premier League. In fact, they're going to finish comfortably, you know, lower mid table, really. Do, do, do you think that that is actually a structure that a lot of clubs could roll out that kind of abandoning the youth system and plunging everything into recruitment and relationships abroad? Or do you think there's still a real place for the old school youth system, youth development um, that, that, you know, a lot of clubs do still have in place? I think ultimately we come down to what's successful for you as a football club, isn't it? You know, if you're, if you're successful on bringing a Jonathan Leco through as a, an eight, nine year old boy into your first team, in playing for your football club and then profiting on on a on a you know on a on a on a resale, resale from that player, you're gonna you're gonna utilize that model. Um, if you're a youth development program that doesn't produce players for your first team or other first teams, then you're gonna look at it. I think as you, you quite rightly said, the B, the B team thing works for Brentford. You know, it's, it, it it fits for them. Um, did they did they shut their academy due to finance? Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, I think so. Was it a financial thing? So you know, financially, would they have kept it? I've also heard rumours that Brentford will, will return to obviously the, the Premier League status and the Premier League money is going to help massively. Will return again to having a an academy and you know and, and you know going right the way through from under sevens all the way through to under twenty three. So I, I hear Brentford will go back to it. I actually think the Brentford thing um, in terms of them operating as a B team, I actually like how they how they get their fixtures. So their fixtures are against different opposition. Um, they're not restricted to how many games they play per week. 
They're not restricted to what days they play. Um, there's a lot of flexibility on that. They're not restricted to what country they play in, so they can go abroad and play games for, for different types of exposure. So I actually think there's some some good in the way that Brentford manage that B team, um, not necessarily on running one team, just on how they, they, they run their day-to-day day-to-day model and their day-to-day work and, and the fixtures and exposure they can have for their players. I think that's something that may be under-23s or maybe something the EPPP could look at. How do you feel about the use of data? I'm all for it. I like it as long as you're productive with it. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think you can be blinded and, and do everything on your eyes or you can't be blinded and do everything by a stat. You know, there's got to be a, a blend and a combination of the two and, and that comes from experience and knowledge, I guess. But, um, I mean, for example going off subject slightly at Rochdale, as Rochdale Football Club there was a stat was on social media the other day you know our XG we should have finished sixth in the league great it's fantastic you know and a lot of a lot of the stats that we would have produced to the football club this year would have been I think we were ranked first for progressive passes first for penalty box entries but in reality we finished 18th so you know it's great having those stats and you know that that promotes what you do in a positive light or a negative light and things you think on, oh, I need to, I need to work on that. We need to improve on that, but there's got to have some meaning to it. And, you know, as, as I said, you know, you've got to have a, have a real, real feel for the stats as well. In terms of recruitment, I, f- I think they're invaluable, you know, so as, as much data you can have going into a play, whether it be your physical metrics, your technical and tactical metrics, um, whether you can do due diligence in a different way. And, you know, you can, you can have a look at trying to find a, some background on the player's personality any information you can have on a player is only going to benefit you. And any information you're going to have on your on your playing identity will, will only benefit you as well. But, you know, you've got to be, be prepared to take the, 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 the rough with the smooth. You know, the smooth, you know it's not all, all about identifying the, the nice stats that, that, that reflect the way that you work on a day-to-day basis. Sometimes you're going to get slapped and, well, actually, we need to have a look at that area of the pitch and we need to be better in, in this area. So, yeah, I'm, I'm all for working with stats, Um as long as, as long as you make use of the stats and and, you, and you're productive with the stats and the information put in front of you, I mean, interesting that you that you say that about Rochdale um, because I, I actually wasn't aware that you, of your XG, but it's, it just rings so so close to home because I mean, we, we we basically got accused earlier in the season of being XGFC from the Black Country because the, you know because uh, Val's XG numbers were great, you know uh, uh, the expected assists. We you know we, we if you looked at the XG, we should have been I think about six points clear of Fulham uh, at the point at which Val got the sack and. I think one of the problems was that Val kept kept coming out and saying it, and there was a point at which the fans were saying, "But we don't accept this because it's not reflected in the in the results on the pitch." Is it? Does there come a point where it's important to keep it in house um, rather than trying to constantly justify yourself with, uh, with with stats, or or is it something where that you you actually do try to turn the fans a little bit and say, "Look." It's going to come because there's no way we can completely outperform these or underperform these numbers forever. Yeah, I think I think a bit of both, and I think that that word justification is it's it's a it, 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 I found myself doing that, Chris. You know, as a as a as a, as a manager at, at Solihull, um, in my assistant role at Rochdale, I've found myself at times thinking, "Hang on a minute, I'm I'm justifying, I'm having to justify the the role that I'm doing and the job that I'm doing." So, I think when you know. When you have a clear vision and identity on how you want to work, and when you know that everything's suggesting that the way that you are working and the way that you want to work is going in the right direction, I think it's very, very difficult to keep that in-house and, and keep it under your hat and, and keep it quiet because 
if you're not seeing those results, as you quite rightly said then, at some stage it's going to turn and it has to turn. Um, and if it doesn't, you've got to give you've got to give that manager, you know, at least two windows to get players in that can that can put, you know, for for example, for argument's sake, you set them forward or you, you play with a front three or a front two, regardless of what you play with, they're not converting the chances. But you're getting the ball in that territory and, and that and that area of the pitch a lot and you and you're creating clear cut chances. But the quality of the player, for example, I'm not saying this happened at West Brom, but the quality of the player wasn't able to have the ability to put the ball in the back of the net. So Jay Rodriguez and Dwight Gales would have a bag load of goals in the time that Darren had the job and I did the caretaker. To care- you put those two players in your team with that XG, I'd imagine you'd have been more than six points clearer than Fulham because because of the stats and the quality of the player. So I think as a manager, you almost you almost feel that you have to justify your workings and the way that you work. As a fan base, if you buy into that philosophy and and, the, and 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 what you see, I think you have to give that manager time personally, and that manager, you know, at least two windows to recruit players that are able to to and the to, hierarchy to of the club and the hierarchy of the club as well. Presumably, they need to they need to understand what the manager is trying to do and. They hired the bloke, so presumably they need to buy into it as well. And if you can see that the numbers are there, but as you say, I mean, fundamentally, you you, you know, you're absolutely spot on. I think that the, the Val wanted Daryl DK in the in the summer. He didn't get him. He was clearly key to what what the the style of play he was trying to play. I think if DK had been there all season and fit, then it might have been a different story. But ultimately, the the hierarchy, although they hired Val, didn't in the end buy into what he was trying to do. That's key, isn't it? You know, that's. I think. It, I think it, the book start, starts and stops with the hierarchy of the football club. Whoever makes those those decisions to bring a manager in with a certain brand and style of football, well, you, you're doing it for a reason. You're doing it because you believe in the manager and the coach, and you believe in the outcome and, and the success it will bring. If at some stage you don't believe in what that manager presented to you, then maybe you need to have a look at yourself. And, and, and so we, we both know that that never happens. You know, you know, people will. Will, will turn on on um, certainly the hierarchy of football clubs on social media platforms, fan pressure, you know, not being in the league position that you you, you anticipated or predicted you would be at the start of the season or uh, on a particular time time timeline. Um, so yeah, you're you're right. I think I think if you appoint a manager, you, you need to give that manager a appropriate time. And you know, you look at the I think the the stat at the minute is is less than less than eleven months. I think somebody told me. You know, a, a manager's life the other day. I think it's, that's ridiculous. It, you know, it's how do you build a football club? How do you build stability? And then going right the way back, Chris. How do you how do you prepare your your academy to 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 go and step into that first environment if it's if it's changed that that readily and regularly? It almost becomes an impossible task. Are you someone that would go into a football club and and have a predefined way of how you want to play, or would you go in and see what players you've got and then adapt it to that? Because under Ishmael, we were kind of very he kind of stuck with his plan all the way through, even though we weren't getting results a lot of the time. Yeah, I think. Uh, listen, I've, I've I've made lots of mistakes since my uh, since my time away from West Brom, and I think one of the one of the biggest mistakes would be, um, in my in, a, in my in my mind, I would pick a team shape and a team system to suit the players. So I've, I've never really been formation based, and because of my role as a twenty three coach under eighteen coach, you know, you would you would have to be adaptable and coach. A wants you to play a four three three. Coach B wants you to be a four four two. So you you're constantly fluctuating between different formations. So I think that aided my development as a coach. But in the back of my mind, I was right then. Effective effective plays in effective areas of the pitch. 
But at some stage, my coaching ego and the way that I wanted to be perceived as a coach took over. So there's probably, yeah, probably, I, I, I probably, I probably lost games in my time at Solihull for being very, very stubborn in the way that I wanted to play, wanted, wanted the game to be played. And, um, you know, maybe at times uh, we, had, we had a lot of injuries at Solihull in my, in my time there and um, a little bit unfortunate with, with the injuries falling on, on real, real key players. Maybe looking back, maybe I should have been a bit more adaptable with, with my approach to the game. Um, but my, I suppose my coaching ego took over. You know, I'm not saying it did week in, week out, but yeah, if I had my time again, 100%, if you're not going at the start of the season where you can, you can shape the squad and you can, you can build a squad to resemble the way you want to do things, I, I, I think you have to, you have to play a brand of football and, and style of football that suit the players. And, and maybe I did that. Maybe I did that at West Brom in my, in my, in my, in my, in my, in my time in charge as a caretaker. Maybe I, I, I tweak the, the, the style of football, maybe a little bit against my personal preferences and, and my personal principles and the way that I'd work with Darren to suit the players. Um, we'll come to that in just a sec. But just before we get on to that, Jimmy, you, you talked before about how proud you are of, uh, of the development of some of the players that you work with and where they've got to in the league. From that point of view, one who's who's really made the breakthrough at West Brom this season, how delighted are you to see Taylor Gardner-Hickman breaking into the first-team picture? Yeah, well, I actually worked with Taylor when he was a, when he was a six-year-old and under seven coming into the football club. And, um, you know, he'd, he'd always been an elite player, Taylor. So he came in and probably was one of the best under seven in the country. And I think at that time, Man City tried to try to try to get him up to Man City. And he ends up staying at West Brom and, and you know, signs his, signs his contract as an under nine. And I'm led to believe then maybe in the, the age groups of, I don't know, under 12 to under 14, I think he found it tough. I think, you know, I think he, you know, he'd gone from being the best player week in, week out on the pitch to maybe being fourth or fifth in that pecking order and, and not being the elite boy. And, other people have took him over, and you get that with youth development, with with growth, maturation, and things like that. Um, and then at fifteen, sixteen, all I kept hearing from the coach that worked with Taylor was, you know, he had, had this real desire for self improvement, you know, and, and wanted to be better, and would go that extra mile and work harder with the people. And when he came in, when he came into uh, the building as a as a first year scholar, I th- I think I left the season that he was going to go go become a second year scholar again. Like so the, the you know Jamie Smith and Dion were. Taylor's got a chance. He's got a real, real chance. You know, he's not, he's not in the top three of the age group right now, but he's got a real, real chance because of his, his work, work ethic and desire. So I think from that stance, in, in knowing the lad's journey from going from being really elite, finding it tough, putting his head down and working his socks off, I think it's a, it's a fantastic story for, for, for the young lad, yeah. Is he what we were talking about before, where, like you say there, he maybe wasn't the top in the top three of ability, but he wanted it. He wanted it the most. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I used to I used to go in the gym quite a lot, five o'clock, you know. So you you do your graphs with it with the first team. You'd, you'd look at opposition stuff and things like that, and do your planning and your prep for the next day. So by the time you had a bit of free time, you know, certainly working at first team, it'd be five o'clock. I can almost guarantee that ninety percent of the time that I was in the gym at five o'clock, Taylor Gardner Hickman was in there, you know, and he'd be one of one of two or three. It wouldn't be wouldn't it be in isolation. There'd be a group of two or three of them. Finn Azaz would be in that crew as well, you know, and, you know, and Finn's a, a player that I, I hold in high regard. And, you know, I think, I think Finn got into the league to um, team of the season as well. I think, um, you know, we, again, it can't be a coincidence that these players are, are working, working very, very hard, you know, away from the contact time they have with the coaches to, to self-improve. So yeah, 100%, it can't be a coincidence. 
it has to work hand in hand with you know with that ability to have that that desire to want to be better and you know and, and forge a career in the game. Sam Johnston's moved on this summer. We don't quite know where to yet, but he's he's obviously not going to be a West Bromwich Albion player. David Button has signed. Um, I, I think it's a two-year deal, but I think the long-term number one shirt for Albion does seem it does seem like it's probably going to be a, a youth team product. So I just wanted to, to get your thoughts on on the three of them because you've obviously got Alex Palmer who has just signed a new four-year deal uh, and he's probably going to be in the first team picture next season. Josh Griffiths, who's just had a really good season uh, on loan until it was curtailed by by injury, and then Ted Can, who from uh, from all accounts really really stood out in the in the Premier League Cup final the other, the other night. What are your thoughts on on those three goalkeepers? Have we got one, two, three, maybe first team goalkeepers on our hands there? And how tough is it as well when you've actually got a, a, a pool of goalkeepers because you can only ever play one of them? Yeah, and I, th- I think if you on the circuit, Chris, everybody speaks about how the West Bromwich Albion produced so many good goalkeepers, and 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 they they have done a you know across the time. And I think those three, those three most definitely, Ted, I'd probably know less of. Josh, I'd have seen on the on, on, on the on the circuit since I've been away from the football club. Alex, I would have worked with closely as an under eighteen goalkeeper, under twenty three goalkeeper. Um, so you know, yes, certainly all three of them I think have a have a real real chance of. As you, as you quite rightly say, they're becoming a West Bromwich Albion number one, and um, it just so happens that you've got three that have come through, you know, at, at a very very similar time. I think Alex is now twenty five ish, Josh would be twenty, Ted twenty, and around that age bracket. So you know, potentially the next ten to fifteen years, you've got you've got three goalkeepers that can either be your number one or, you, or your number two that you know that can compete for those positions. Um, all three of them have very very good ability. Alex, I think, is ready for the step. So. Um, Alex, Alex, Alex is a, is a is a great. If you speak to Mark Naylor at any time on your podcast, Mark Naylor has a video of Alex Palmer coming into the building as another fifteen. Um, and I'm sure Alex won't mind me saying this. Alex couldn't catch the ball, and I, and I, and I, and I, and I mean I mean that sincerely. Like from a technical aspect, Alex was an absolute complete car crash. From a physical aspect, superb. From that mentality again, from somebody who wanted to get his head down. And wanted to succeed up there with the, with the very best that I work with in terms of tunnel vision, you know, be committed to making himself better physically, make himself better technically and tactically. Um, he, 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 he has that in abundance. If you could bottle it and sell it, it'd, it'd be a very, very rich man. Um, but yeah, going, going, going back to the Alex one, I've watched him develop and progress, work hard on his craft and his game. I've seen him go, and, go on loan and have some real unsuccessful spells. In terms of his time at Kiddy, I used to be the, the designated one. Either myself or Mike Naylor would go across and sit in the stands at Kiddy. You know, he was a young lad there. He made mistakes there. He had fans on his back. But he took everything within his stride, you know, to, to make himself mentally stronger, physically stronger, technically and tactically better. And then his, 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 season, his season at Plymouth was, was absolutely fantastic, you know. And you start hearing, hearing and reading some of the reports on him, seeing some of his displays. In goal, um, you know, he's, he's he's one that's really progressed, you know, through hard work and, and development. And no doubt Mark Naylor would have played a big part in that as well within his, his goalkeeper programme. Josh, on the circuit, people rate very, very highly. You know, I think, I think there's been some some clubs that have shown an interest in, in Josh, you know, bigger clubs to to try and be one of those academy players again that, that gets taken away from, from West Bromwich Albion. So that'll be, that'll be interesting to, to see how, 
how that develops with Josh, with Josh Griffiths. But yeah, to answer your question, mate, I think we've got three fantastic young goalkeepers who, who all can compete, you know, and, and play a part in the success of West Bromwich Albion over the next 10 to 15 years. And we've seen a few this season kind of around the edges of things. Um, Tom Fellows, uh, Caleb Taylor came on on the final uh, final day. Zach Ashworth has appeared in, in the last two games. And then we've had, obviously, the under-23s winning the Premier League Cup, which is a pretty decent statement as well. Who do you think, uh, do you think there's some that, that might be the next cabs off the rank? Um, uh, is, the, is there somebody we've not seen yet or, or one of those ones that, that we've just mentioned there? Uh, who, who do you think could be the next ones that we could see coming through and, and doing what Taylor Gardner-Hickman has done this season? Some, some of those players, Chris, I wouldn't have seen for a number of years. Like the likes of Tom Fellow, I wouldn't have worked with him. Um, so I wouldn't be the best person to answer that question. What I would say is, is that if you've got that, that amount of players that are around your first-team squad, there has to be an element of trust there from, from what, whatever the management team is in charge. There's an element of trust. If they're able to train with the first-team regularly, if they're able to be on the bench and have, whether it be lots of minutes or minim, minimalistic minutes on the pitch, then the player has to be of a certain level, a certain standard. The big thing for me is, is, is the opportunity. You know, So Taylor, Taylor has gone in and grasped the opportunity. That's exactly what he's done. We actually at Rochdale were, were, were trying to loan Taylor at the start of the season. So Taylor's, Taylor's career could have been very, very different. You know, he, he could have come to Rochdale, found it very difficult, played a handful of games at League Two, returned back to your football club and everybody did look at that and go, that wasn't very successful, was it, for, for Taylor? He hasn't played as many minutes as he thought it would be. And Taylor wouldn't be in the same lot as he, he is now. Taylor was kept in the building, given an opportunity and he grasped the opportunity. So I think with... With a lot of a lot of a lot of things in youth development, when you if you if you're 19, 20 and you're you're a young pro at the club, and as I said, you're training day and day with the first team. You're talented. It's about the opportunity, and when that opportunity gets thrusted to you, you have to grasp it. So, the names that you mentioned, then if they are handed an opportunity and they grasp it, then you know it's going to be beneficial to you as a football club. Without the opportunity, nobody knows. Most definitely, they'll have the talent because they're in and around that pool already. I remember going to a Premier League event some years ago and, and David Mize, somebody asked David Mize when he was Everton manager, how do, you know, how, do you, how do you know that a young player is ready? And it's always stuck with me. David Mize said, if they can handle a training session with the first team and a first team player is prepared to trust them and get them on the ball and involve them, then I know they're ready. It's just about whether they can transition and can they deal with the crowd? Can they deal with the pressure? Can they deal with the atmosphere? And then it kicks back to what you originally said, it's about mentality. Are they mentally strong enough and and robust enough to be able to deal with those those pressures, I guess. Well, that's all for part one of Albion Analysis meets Jimmy Shan. But join us next week for part two, when Jimmy will reflect on the 18-19 season and his 12 games in charge of the baggies. Albion have certainly been sharing the goals around this season. They're well into double figures now for different championship goal scorers. So why not take a leaf out of their book and do some sharing of your own with a McNugget share box? Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. 
And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.